All right, welcome back to Sloydcast. I'm your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined by Mike, aka 60K Sloyd, Hannah, and uh, we're on a roll. Yeah. This is uh, what we did recording two weeks ago. Yeah. So we're back, yeah. and uh, we're excited today because we have uh, Mark Krawcheck joining us. Mm-hmm. And I think Mark is going to be a surprise for a lot of people because he doesn't have a big online presence, mm-hmm. but he has been rooted and stewed in all of the screen woodworking for a long time. So nice. excited to pick his brain about his history and all of his experiences along the way. Yeah. So welcome, Mark. Well, thank you very much, you guys. Pleasure to join you. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about where you live and give us a rundown of kind of your work, both as a green woodworker and just at large, what your life is like. Absolutely. Uh, I'm in the Champlain Valley in Vermont. So it's on the west side of the state. And it's as far as um, this part of New England goes, it's kind of a more agricultural region, broad, wide valley between the Adirondacks and the Green Mountains. So we're in this kind of like, um, middle elevation or kind of low elevation, 300 feet, roughly above sea level, rolling hills, um, a lot of, uh, dairy in this, in this part of the world. Um, and my wife and I are on 52 acres of field and, and woods. Uh, we have a small farm where we've been growing a number of different things and kind of focused specifically on a few nutrient dense berries and Mm. shiitake mushrooms. Mm. Um, we've got a high tunnel greenhouse and grow some, you know, summer vegetables in there and a little nice. farm stand, um, doing dabbling a little bit in, in some nursery stock, very small at this point. Um, and a lot of it though, one of our biggest yields from what we've been doing in the landscape here has been, um, just education and kind of sharing some of the R and D that yeah. you know, we've been employing over the years. Um, and then just, uh, contextually on our place, we've, I, f- I first bought this property in 2012 and um, and so we've basically kind of built our infrastructure and homestead from the ground up since and so it's been a big uh, learning journey of, of learning along the way we, we started off building a pole barn where we insulated one bay that we could live in while we built our house and we, mm-hmm. we paid for um, our, our house construction as we went so we don't have a mortgage on our house which is awesome and we kept yeah. it oh, yeah. small and and well insulated and, and didn't skimp on materials, but we also just, you know, um, you know, tried to, uh, try, try to build it as, as craft like as possible, but also as economically as we could. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I kind of bigger picture, uh, <clears throat> I work as a, as a land planning, uh, permaculture design consultant, um, and, and also do a lot of teaching. And so my, my teaching is kind of the bread and butter that keeps all the other habits afloat. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I teach a couple of different permaculture design courses each year. Yep. Um, I've also taught for a number of years, I taught a, a ladder back chair making class uh, mm-hmm. using greenwood techniques, um, primarily through the Yestermorrow design build school here in Vermont. Mm. And, um, and then I've also been a really avid natural builder for about the last 20 years or so, um, with an emphasis on earthen techniques like cob and adobe, and then some of the wattle and daub, uh, straw bale, 
um, and, and earthen plasters and things. And so I, I often teach like earthen oven building classes, a, a couple of those a year. And, and so, you know, I kind of patch all those skill sets and interests mm. together in a way that's worked sufficiently as a livelihood and, <laughs> and always keeps me engaged and, and um, feeling fulfilled. Um, wow. Yeah. That's what awesome. a full life. <laughs> I'm sure you guys know all about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you and I, we Incredible. met um, in Vermont teaching together. Um, yep. And I was amazed just as we got to know each other more, um, learning about your, I mean, obviously all the skills and experience you have, because you've been into the permaculture stuff since what, like the early nineties. Is that right? Uh, not the early nineties. I'm not that old. Uh, I wish, <laughs> yeah. I took my I early two thousands, I guess. Like 99, I, I think. Okay. Yeah. I had, I had my, I, I had my digital. Yeah, exactly. It's a one, one decade later, but my um, bad. <laughs> that's, that's quite all right. That's quite, I'm feeling that age sometimes. So, um, but yeah, yeah. The late nineties, I, uh, I was a student at the university of Vermont and that was when I was really first introduced to all of that kind of self-sufficient living, reskilling the ideas of like going, getting back to the land, you know, Helen and Scott nearing and living the good life, um, right. were really formative, um, inspirations for me. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pushing the two decade mark safely, uh, at this point to, to say that I've been walking this path. And, um, so the, I guess we could go in so many different directions with this conversation, but obviously being Sploidcast, we want to yeah. really, I mean, well, this is, well, here's a point I want to make. One thing that is always, one of the biggest things we get out of these conversations is figuring out how did people get to green woodworking or Sloyd or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's comes around a relationship to a landscape or ecology mm -hmm. or permaculture or farming. Um, and it seems like it grows out of that. Um, so what was the first time that you heard about green woodworking that you can mm. make things out of just raw material? Um, well, the first time that I like green woodworking specifically, I was first introduced to um, I. So when I graduated from college in 2001, I realized I had basically zero practical skills. I realized that a few years before that, but um, yeah. I, I came out of college knowing basically what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, which is, mm. I have to remind myself this all the time. It's what I do every day because yeah. it's sometimes <laughs> not glamorous stuff that um, allows you to, you know, achieve the dream that often is the 30 or 50 year vision. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's easy to get lost in, in the day to day sometimes. Um, so I spent about three and a half years doing like work trades and internships with different people trying to you know, pursue various skill sets. And so that revolves around agroforestry, natural building, and then um, what I sometimes call traditional forestry. And mm, then yeah. that led me towards green woodworking. <clears throat> so mm -hmm. in 2001, I read Ben Law's book, The mm -hmm. Woodland Way. Yep. And that book just, you know, completely captivated me. Um, the idea of, you know, a lifestyle and livelihoods that were just completely interwoven with the landscape surrounding him. And so I wrote him a letter to see if he <laughs> took apprentices and he did. And so that fall, I, I had the good fortune of getting to spend November to June um, of, nice. uh, it was probably 2002, 2003, okay. uh, 
you know, just working with him, living with him, um, along with, there were a couple of other of us um, that were also in that kind of apprentice role. And, you know, that was really my first window into, you know, seeing a shaving horse and a pole mm. lathe. And, mm. um, and we were harvesting sweet chestnut. It was about most of what we cut that season because winter is the the season of harvesting coppice materials usually right, um, right. Mm -hmm. was was kind of 18 year olds like six inch diameter um regrowth off these chestnut trees that were actually planted about 160 years earlier and had been oh, harvested wow. every 20 or so years that's in, amazing ever awesome. since yeah mm -hmm. So I saw the shaving horse and, you know, we got to, to toy around on it, but we didn't necessarily have a lot of projects to do um, that were relevant at that point. And I, that led me to learn a bit more about um, Mike Abbott, who's, uh -huh, yeah. you know, over in the UK, one of the people that has really helped to repopularize green woodworking and, and um, you know, just yeah. hand tool crafts. And, and so I went and did a, a chair making class with him and okay, that just nice. kind of lit that fire for me. And, um, and then I'll just add one more little anecdote here, just kind of about my, my early experience was, um, I just fell in love with the interaction with wood and the tools and the simplicity. He had this amazing outdoor workshop. It was right, right. basically just like big canvas covered tent, um, yep. you know, completely off the grid and, um, just super idyllic, simple and, um, and, and so when I came back to the States, I realized I wanted to learn a lot more about green woodworking. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of, I think, uh, interaction between the folks who were kind of helping repopularize green woodworking in the, in probably the eighties, nineties, two thousands. And, um, Drew Langsner being another person yeah. who had done a lot to contribute to the, the modern state of the art and, they have a summer intern every season. And so the following year I got to be their summer intern. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that gave me a really good, you know, immersion um, in, in the practices and, and just kind of further kindled that, that love for, for craft. Wow. Nice. So wow. <laughs> it's cool. That, so it's funny just hearing you recount all that because we, we interviewed Mike, uh, I don't know, six, probably six months ago, Mike yeah. Abbott. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, oh, cool. And a lot, a lot of people we've talked to, they, they got their start or they really, they found their passion going to Mike's workshop. Yeah. Um, nice. so <clears throat> that's really cool. Just the connections that he has, you know, spawned and then drew on the state side, all the stuff that, you know, all the people that have come through, uh, country yeah. work workshops. And, um, so that's just, I think it's just so cool that, that you're tied back to that at that time too. And, and yeah. Ben law, especially, I mean, he was from what I understand at that time, he was just like roughing it out on the land, mm. um, cutting cop, what, cutting chestnut. And yeah, when I got there, I, I don't know if, if folks haven't had a chance to follow the, the construction of his house, there was a, a fantastic episode of a sort of, um, reality TV type show that would follow different homes construction from start to finish. Um, and it, that that show is called Grand Designs, and yeah. there's there's an hour long episode of the construction of his home on Grand Designs. If you were to search Ben Law Grand Designs on YouTube, you should find it. And um, nice. I yeah, got there just at the video. tail end of of his house construction. So we were oh, doing okay. the interior plasters on the straw bale walls and oh nice some other finish work and stuff. So I got to see the very end of that. So that was a big oh, okay. transition, I think, for him um, in terms of you know, just his level of relative comfort 
and yeah. um and how established he was already well established on that property but right um, right you know that also added you know i'm sure releasing his book brought a lot more notoriety to mm -hmm. him and his work and then the grand designs episode really kind of catapulted him onto the national stage in the, in the uk it seemed yeah 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 that's awesome because we yeah. i i'd seen a i think i'm getting mixing up some of my memories because there's an episode with um do you know who river cottage or drew or um hugh friendly whittingstall um i do yeah so he did a show before he started river cottage where he just it was called a cook on the wild side i think Mm -hmm. And in one of the episodes, he's just like driving a, a Land Rover across the UK and like just stopping with random people and foraging along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in one of the episodes, he stops at Ben Laws. And I think this is where I was getting mixed up. Yeah. And, and Ben's living in a, literally what they call a bender, which is like a, a, a yeah, bent poles with a tarp over it. And they're like, <laughs> mm -hmm. they're tapping birch trees and drinking a bunch of homemade wine. And it's just a really funny, it's a funny episode because that, because uh, Hugh Friendly Whittingstall is a character, but. Anyway, that was when I, because I, I had known about Ben Law and then I saw that and it was just, anyway, connecting all that. So you, so you kind of came in as he was transitioning out of that phase and then was really like building a presence at the property and starting to set up kind of his bigger business. Exactly. Yeah. That's yep. awesome. So yeah. um, we, one thing I want to touch on is the coppicing and the, uh, and all of that because you're writing or you've written a book on that and I want to talk about that shortly. Um, but before that, uh, so you've pretty much focused primarily on like ribbon type green woodworking, making chairs and um, things of that nature. That's is that correct? Correct. That's, you know, in my my green woodworking practice has largely been that um, most I haven't done. I did, you know, a little bit of turning on the pole lathe. I, I built mm -hmm. a pole lathe probably 15 years ago and still have not yet actually put it to work there's like a few pieces that still need to be constructed now it's like up in the rafters in our in our pole barn and i actually just found the perfect pole the other day oh nice um Great. but we'll see there's so many other things that have gotten in the way of it um yeah but yeah for the most part it's been like riven crafts you know uh shaved on uh shaped on the shaving horse mm. um for a number of years I, like I still have the business Riven Wood Crafts is the name of my green yeah. woodworking business. I, I think mm -hmm. I started that probably in 2004 and um, primarily made chairs. There's all, there's you know, a number of like classic Riven crafts, like the um, hay forks and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. wooden hay rakes and, and things like that. And I've, I've dabbled in using those techniques for um, making other things as well. But um, yeah, it's largely revolved around the chair making. Mm -hmm. nice. Yeah. Nice. That's amazing. It's that's a piece that Mike and I have not gotten into. Mm -hmm. Um we've we we've both not really done much ribbon green woodworking mm -hmm. to speak yep. of. Um mm -hmm. I've always I mean I have Drew Langsner's book, um his green woodworking book and I've I've probably had it like 10 years now and yeah. I've 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 looked over the plans for his firewood carrier and yeah. the rake mm -hmm. and I'm like, "Oh, I, I could I could build that." And yeah. then you know, <laughs> next thing you know, it's like a year later and I'm like, "Oh, I saw him totally. build one." Yeah. Um Yeah. And I think that's that's something that I have a struggle with is, is I, I create very long lists of things I want to do in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and then I never, it, it just stays there. And, yeah. and, I'm the same way. Um, yeah. So that's a piece of green word breaking that I haven't ventured into, but I can see how that just my experience with doing various things with, with, um, kind of that approach using the, the shape horse and, and riving stuff. And, yeah. um, I can see how it's, 
it's like another it's it's very different from like spoon carving or bowl turning sure. it's, it's yeah. much more um it's much more it seems more calculated mm-hmm. and um maybe even i don't know it's obviously all of it's very meditative because you're you're it's just such a yeah you're so in touch with the whole process and the material but there's something yeah. about chair making that is a little bit intimidating i it will, is. I will it admit is. it um, is very even though mike abbott you know when we talked to him he was insistent that it's easy <laughs> anyone can do it and he'll he yeah. can teach you in in a, in a day he could teach you and you'll know it and you'll yeah. be able to do it yeah. time and again yeah um yeah so <laughs> yeah i've done some stools and some benches and they were pretty easy to do i would say to some degree but i totally just like did them from zero zero plans and zero knowledge i'm like well i guess the angle is supposed to be this <laughs> let's <Yeah>. try it <laughs> yeah. yeah but it's funny that you, you talked about that stuff because i was just watching the woodwright shop which has kind of been my my regular yeah uh, my regular type of entertainment uh in the evenings mm-hmm. and there was an episode that i recently watched that um was about making a, a fire log carrier like a steam bent fire yeah. log carrier which i saw on your website and god i forget the maker's name that um that uh roy underhill had on this episode for that one um me and mark just talked about it he I, we would like to have him on the podcast oh yeah um elias uh, elias i think yeah. something like that he's elias. he's i think he's based maybe in tennessee or somewhere in the yeah. south but um but yeah like just steam bending to me is like wow okay that's a whole nother <laughs> level like how do you even get mm-hmm. to that you know yeah and using wood in a way that's just like different and so it's it's pretty intimidating i would say you know you know me, well i i totally hear that um the funny thing about like taking that initial workshop with Mike Abbott was that I really had no, um, you know, I, my, my big foray into woodworking prior to that was like, I bought uh, an old school, like cordless Makita drill and a jigsaw <laughs> and something else and like knocked together some shelves. And I was the yeah. handiest person in my college that, you know, I knew. Um, and, <laughs> I and I, you know, I had basically no skills at all when it came to that. Um, I'd, you know, used a saw for cutting wood and things. And I, and then I took this workshop with Mike Abbott and it was a six day class mm. and I came away with a chair and mm. I think Ben Law still has it cause I left it there <laughs> uh, and awesome. you know, it's rough around the edges and whatever. And he, he helped at a few points, but, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it is, and having taught it too, it's really interesting, um, to see the progression that students go through over the course of you know, five or six days or whatever the length of the class is. Right. Um, and, and, and then the great thing about all of this is that, you know, the second time you mm. have something to compare your experience to, and you're just that much more educated and confident and you kind of know the path. Mm. Um, right. And so, you know, the best thing obviously to do after you've made one is to make another one quick because right. it just gets a lot easier. But I totally hear you on the kind of intimidation of it. Um, That's why I think like to start off, it's like making a stool is perfect because it has all the fundamental. I just taught a two day stool making workshop Mm. or maybe it's two and a half day ladder back stool making workshop here last fall. And it's like, you can learn all the fundamental aspects of it um, without having to make something. And and basically all you need is like two or three nice chunks of firewood to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, I find that's, that's the perfect introduction. And then scaling it up, it's just, it can get more and more complex and the angles and the, for sure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Cause I, I, um, I've got this drum set in my shop that, uh, I was given to by my, my sister's fiance. He gave me a bunch of 
pieces from an old drum set and it's just been kind of sitting in the corner and i finally got the rest of the kit i need to start filming it out and like make it a real drum set mm. but i'm missing a stool so i'm like <laughs> make one you know you buy a drum you buy these drummer stools and they're like eh, they're like 150 bucks i'm like yeah eh. so I'm, so that actually is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna my first project nice. is gonna be a stool go. for my drum kit there you go. <laughs> perfect um it's perfect necessity man so that's a good advice yeah um and you've also done a lot of work with, it looks like a lot of your chairs, you, you have done a lot of woven seats or woven backs and you've gotten, uh, I know you've got a lot of experience with harvesting hickory bark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Cause I don't, we've yeah. never, we've never talked about that. And that's something I'm not, I've, I've heard of it and I've cut a few hickories down for other reasons and like, just mess around to see, you know, what was going on underneath there. But right. yeah. can you give us a little rundown of that? Absolutely. Like. Yeah. I mean, that's so the, you know, the classic ladder back chair has a woven seat. And if, right. mm-hmm. just in case people don't know, like uh, tossing out some terms that might not be familiar. Yeah. You know, the way I kind of learned about chair making. And first off, I would say for anyone that's interested in really diving into this, I don't know if it's still available or if you can get an ebook version, but Drew Langsner's book called uh, The Chairmaker's Workshop mm-hmm. is basically the Bible must have. Um, if you want to get into this, it's got plans for three different styles of chairs, including a ladder back chair, uh, a Windsor chair, and, uh, and then the rustic Windsor chair, along with plans for making a shaving horse. It's got mm. all sorts of details on, um, you know, tools, sharpening, nice. utility of different types of wood. It's a fantastic resource and, yeah, yeah. um, really well illustrated, just very clear. Um, so I kind of learned to look at the, uh, what would you call it? The, the genealogy is not quite the term, but of, of chairs mm-hmm. following like kind of one of two main paths. We have the, the ladder back, which is also known as the post and rung chair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Post and rung is, is a little bit more clear as a name because you have, right. you have generally four posts and then you have horizontal rungs um, that lock the posts together. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, those, that style has a woven seat. Mm-hmm. And then often they'll have slats. Um, if it's a chair, you know, instead of a stool, it's going to have slats to support your back um, right. that are mortised into the, the back posts. There is a variation on that called the spindle back. As Mike mm-hmm. Abbott does a lot with the spindle back. And in that case, instead of having like slats, um, which in this case are usually like three or four inches wide and maybe uh, I think, what is it? It's, they're three eighths thick or no, three three sixteenths. I forget what the thickness is on. They're very thin. Um, generally, um, the, the spindle back uses rungs often in kind of a decorative Mm. configuration, just as a, as a back support. So there's that post and rung or ladder back style. And then there's the Windsor chair that has like a solid carved slab seat. Um, traditionally they're all turned the, the part, the, the legs and the Mm -hmm. um, stretchers that lock in the undercarriage are turned. Um, and then there's a number of variations. The the classic one is the one with the big steam bent bow and then a Mm -hmm. bunch of, you know, vertical spindles. I don't think those are called spindles. I forget what they're called. Um, but I've really, I, I built one rustic Windsor chair, um, which is similar to the Windsor, um, except it's way more rustic. Um, most of (laughs) that design is that it's, it's basically like, uh, it's shaved as opposed mm-hmm. to being turned in a lot of cases. Uh, gotcha. You could still turn it, but um, I, I believe that's more of a modern variation too on like kind of a, a traditional Welsh design. Um, mm. And okay. um, 
And so, but I tend to kind of think of, you know, the ladder back in the Windsor as being the two main styles of chair that we see throughout time. And they're both, you know, one has the solid seat, the other, the ladder back has the woven. And so that was just all a little tangent to kind of contextualize the, the hickory and the weaving. Um, So we're blessed here, obviously for listeners and in (laughs) Eastern North America, because we have just this embarrassment of hardwood riches here. (laughs) Um, And, and it so happens that hickory bark is a fantastic weaving material. That's really forgiving and easy to work with. Um, It's very hard to find, Mm -hmm. like if you want to buy it from someone um, and it's fairly expensive, like, well, although if you, actually have any idea how much labor it takes you know 50 or 60 dollars for a chair seats worth is is pretty inexpensive and i there was um a family that was doing it in in tennessee i think at least a couple generations i think and i I can't recall i could share their contact info if if you wanted to drop that into sure you know the notes or something later if if you remind me but um, i have bought in some cases hickory bark from them and technically, so when we call it hickory bark, what we're actually talking about is the inner bark or the bast, which mm-hmm. is um, also, it's the phloem of the tree. It's, it's that um, layer of cells outside of the cambium, but yep. below the, the flaky, you know, outer bark, that's the protective layer. And so, so go ahead. That's between the sapwood and the actual like bark, the exterior bark, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so the time the, you can harvest barks at, you know, any time of year, but it's the, the best time is during the kind of late spring in this part of the world. It's probably, you know, mid May to early June is optimal Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of sap flowing through the tree Mm -hmm. at that point Mm -hmm. in the season. And so, um, if, if you cut a hickory tree during that point in the season, you, you, I don't know, it theoretically may be possible to do it on a standing tree. I know mm-hmm. that's done for birch bark and it's done with like right. cork oaks and things, but yeah. um, it would be a headache and <laughs> you know, it, it, you'd be very limited in how long the strips mm-hmm. th- that you could get. Mm-hmm. Um, and so generally you're going to fell the tree. And right. that's great because right. hickory's got all kinds of good uses. And, yeah, right. and so trees on the ground. And then basically you just straddle it with the draw knife and shave off the outer bark. And basically mm-hmm. you're just going as deep as you need to get below that outer bark. You're just getting the outer okay. bark off. And what I found for weaving, um, especially chair seats, is with some exceptions, the longer the strips, the better. Um, because you need roughly like 75 to 90 lineal feet worth of like one inch wide material to do a typical chair seat. And, um, and so when when you, this is a little like detailed uh, from a weaving point of view, but there's, there's two parts of the weave, the warp and the weft and the Mm -hmm. the warp is like the front to back. And that's really quick. You're just Mm -hmm. looping it around the the rungs. Um, There's no weave that's happened yet. You're basically just kind of, you're setting the loom up. Yeah. And, and so for that, not having to splice in new pieces is really nice. Mm. So if you can have like one continuous piece, that just saves you the time it takes to tie a knot on the underside. Uh, uh, you kind you. of fashion up a little fancy knot for nice to tie them together. So I'm usually going for, if I can, like a 30 foot length. Oh, wow. Um, wow. 
you know, you can't always get that, but um, I find that to be really useful just for, for speed's sake. Um, mm -hmm. So after you've shaved off that outer bark, then you just take a knife and, and score um, strips along the length of the tree. So these are long longitudinal strips mm. um, that you've just, you know, embedded your knife in down to the wood and, and just sliced along the length. And you can pry up a corner once you've scored it fully. And, mm. and literally it's like peeling a banana. Um, mm -hmm. It's amazing. It just completely cool. delaminates from the wood and it's, mm. it's beautiful and it's so satisfying. Um, <laughs> and there's all sorts of little complicated things that can happen along the way that make it not as easy maybe as I described, but by and mm. large, it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty easy and pretty forgiving. Um, it's also, like I said, it's, it's kind of time consuming. Um, right. You know, it's often hard to fashion situate the log where you're like in a comfortable spot you know so you're kind of haunched over and right um <laughs> so sometimes people just cut big wide strips and then bring them back to the shop and right. rehydrate them later and cut them down what i've found is that it's easiest to cut those strips you know the the one inch width or whatever while it's still on the log uh, okay got it that makes um, sense because it's kind of stable and Exactly. There's something holding it. Cause right. you know, if you've got a 30 foot long strip, you've got to unfurl <laughs> that's eight inches wide or something. And then you're trying to cut one inch strips because you, there is a grain to the bark too. And so your right. knife kind of wants to follow that grain. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. And um, just a couple little more details I'll, I'll share about it. And then basically we just coil it up after you've peeled those strips off and mm -hmm. let it dry. You could weave with it straight away if you wanted to, but normally um, you're going to have more material than you'd need for a single project. Yeah. Um, and so when it's dry, it's basically good, like indefinitely. Mm. And if wow. whenever you're ready to weave with it, you just um, soak it in some warm to slightly hot water mm. and it softens up and it becomes kind of like rawhide almost. Mm. Um, so and, cool. and it's super durable. I've, I've heard people say, you know, 60 to a hundred years these seats can mm. last. Mm. Wow. Um, obviously like that's not kids jumping on them and people like <laughs> standing in the center of the seat. And, right. um, but, and then the other interesting thing that I'll just share about it is that, um, depending on the tree, the thickness can vary quite a bit of the actual mm. bark itself, that inner bark. Yeah. And a lot of times you end up with a better material if you split it, basically rive it in half. Um, yeah, okay. so I'm saying thickness wise, you're, right, you're right. splitting it in half. Mm. And to do that, you basically take your knife and just kind of wedge it into the end grain of that bark yeah. and then just start to pry it open. And, um, once you learn some basic techniques, you can really, like a lot of times what'll happen is the split will tend to, to, um, meander off in one direction or the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and by applying pressure, more pressure to the um, thicker side, by just kind of bending it more firmly on the thicker side, you can often recorrect that split. Mm. So effectively, you like double your yield. Mm. Um, and usually it's the innermost piece that's the most durable. Um, okay. Often that outer piece can vary a bit more in thickness. There might be a little bit of that like outer bark that's still there. Yeah. Um, but so it's also neat because like cutting one tree, you know, even like a six or eight inch diameter tree, um, you're going to get several chair seats worth of materials. Mm. You could also weave, you know, 
like Adirondack pack style baskets or, right. you know, yeah, other styles. That. It's, it's a just, it's almost, it's not nearly as durable as, as like the white Oak splints for white right. Oak baskets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but um, it still is really strong and it's a lot easier to process a lot of yeah. it. Yeah. I was, was going to say is it sounds a lot like either the white Oak processing for basketry or, um, the ash, the white, yeah. I guess it's, they use white ash or I don't know. I guess you I've, I've always heard brown or black, which I think are oh, okay. the same species. Um, okay. Yeah. Cause, right. Cause they grow, those grow in the, the, the kind of bottomland, like yeah, swampy. swampy. Yep. Um, but it sounds a lot like that. Cause you're like, cause well, I'm actually looking, first of all, I'm looking at your website. You've got a nice little page about this. So I'll, I'll put I, that in the show notes so people can. Yeah. I was going to say, I've got some up. good pictures of it. Um, but it looks like, yeah, you can kind of split it down. You get, you can get multiple, um, pieces. Um, and, uh, the other question I have is what's like, what's the average age of a tree you'd be looking for to get, I mean, well, obviously that, that's going to vary, but yeah, I mean, uh, so I don't do a ton of green woodworking these days. I like, if I get an order, I will, I will fulfill it, but, um, I'm also not trying to drive a lot of traffic um to me just because i've found that i'm not good at accurately pricing my time and that i feel like (laughs) i price myself uh yeah and and i'm also fulfilled by the other things that i do and so teaching has been the the mechanism and and Mm -hmm. just doing it for myself that um you know i i still employ most often but a couple years ago i got a neat order from a guy that wanted some you know we kind of co-designed some um ladder back armchairs uh, for him and his wife nice. and and i cut a tree like so i we have some hickory in our woods hickory is not super common in vermont um but we're mm-hmm. kind of in this neat little ecotone here um we call our farm the valley clay plain forest farm because the the name of the natural community here is the valley clay plain forest which is kind of mm-hmm. this um this intersection between the oak hickory Mm -hmm. um forest types that we'll find more in like new york state pennsylvania and then the northern hardwoods which tend to be more you know maple um cherry beech birch ash uh hemlock and so we we've got this kind of hyper diverse um intersection between those two ecosystem types here and so we do have some hickory but I also don't want to cut any trees that are super nice because I'd rather have those making more trees for the forest to come. Um, So I found, you know, a little pocket where there was a half dozen trees that were growing tight together Mm -hmm. and just took down the least nice one. And it was probably only six inches in diameter, DBH diameter at breast height. It wasn't big. I probably wouldn't go too much smaller, but you could if uh, like, you're just going to get the 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 larger it is you know it's it's not exponential but it yields a whole lot more material if you go with a bigger mm-hmm. tree sure um, that makes sense and um so yeah it doesn't have to be big um okay so maybe i don't like know a, what i would say like is the smallest to, like a maybe like a 12 or 20 year old tree somewhere in that range mm-hmm. uh yeah yeah well, probably I, i'm speaking in virginia terms i, I should yeah i was gonna say i don't know about <laughs> here that that, those, that tree might have been 40 years old or something yeah. that i cut but um yeah. But I would say more diameter wise, it's like, I probably wouldn't go much smaller than six inches, but okay. at the same time, like the, the cool thing about it is that no one even recognizes that there's any value in the bark. Right. So, mm. you know, even beyond just cutting, like <clears throat> back in the day, 
I put ads on Craigslist just saying I was looking for hickory, like some standing yeah. hickory. And um, I had a couple, you meet really interesting people, as I'm sure folks <laughs> know, through just Craigslist in general. But especially when you put like random ads up like that, where it's like, I'm looking for some sure. hickory bark. Yeah. Um, and we just went out in the woods and they cut the tree. I mean, all they wanted was the wood and yeah. I didn't need to touch the wood. So, mm-hmm. you know, right, I still right. gave them something for, for, you know, the, the time and whatever. Right. Um, but if you knew that someone was doing some clearing already and the tree wasn't coming down till it, it, ideally, again, it's happening in that window, you know, in the, the late spring. Right. Um, you know, a day of time sitting there um, processing, harvesting bark is going to yield a whole bunch of material and you know they still have the wood left over Mm -hmm. so it you know it it doesn't need to be um it i I probably wouldn't do it if it was much less than like five inches in diameter but um i think largely that's just because you're not going to get that many strips you know the the larger the diameter you're just your uh your yield is going to increase quite a bit yeah and the last thing i should say just about harvesting is you can do it outside that window but you almost, I haven't really done that much when it wasn't slipping easily. Cause like mm. I said, it, you know, it does peel like a banana and it's, yeah, yeah. Mm. it's just so easy and fun. And I think if you're outside that, that window of time, um, you almost need to kind of shave it with the draw knife mm-hmm. and, and you're going to tend to damage it more and it's just sure. going to be harder work. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm getting excited. I want to try this because we've got some really nice, we've got a lot of hickory here. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, and as, as I alluded to, it grows very fast, uh, yeah. as every tree does here. Um, and there's some areas I'm thinking of on our farm here that there's some pockets where it's very dense. Um, uh, like where I actually, you mentioned finding the perfect spring pole. That's where Mike and I harvested some, some, uh, pole spring poles, just beautifully straight, you know, perfect diameter right. hickory. That's just like never, it has no future. Cause it's just in the middle of this forest. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually thinking of a few trees I know of that. Uh, this would be a fun project to to take on and experiment with. Yeah, add Sweet. to the to do list because we yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's on the to do list. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot a lot one day, you know, and then yeah, and then exactly. So you know you're gonna have your hickory day. Put it on the calendar. Yeah, and then be two hours out of that day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> invite some friends over and they can they can harvest. You take shifts. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. what that's what we'll do. Um, It'll be a little problem. Well, and the cool you know, was that then, you know, this was two years ago that I dropped that tree and harvested the bark. And then I just find I just left it on the ground to, you know, season in place the tree. And so I just skidded it out of the woods a couple of weeks ago. And so now, you know, it was just like I've got oh, my, nice. my you know, air dried firewood yeah. um over here too. So it was like I would have used it for that anyway. Sure. And um, yeah. in the meantime, I got I got the bark for this project. Stacking your functions. <laughs> exactly. Now we're in the permaculture. <laughs> Very resourceful. I know. I think um, we're, we're always in the permaculture if yeah. you're thinking about it, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, there's a lot of overlap between the ideas of permaculture and Sloyd, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, there's just, yeah, it's all about, you know, it's all about common sense, really. That's what it comes yeah. down to is, yeah. is being, yeah. just being like, not letting your mind complicate, Yeah, you know, what's right in front of you. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. That's got me excited. I want to, cause, cause we don't have, I mean, ash 
Emerald ash borer has been like, it's been pretty since, since I've lived here, yeah. the ash trees have just disappeared. It's been kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah, um, it's tearing through the ash trees. And, uh, so there's not really ash to work with to speak of mm-hmm. and white Oak, um, is something I would like to play around with at some point, but this is mm-hmm. like very accessible, you know, white Oak from what yeah. I've, what I've learned is, you know, it's, it's a pretty arduous process getting that material. Um, and if I, I would love to start messing around with chairs just yeah. here and there. And, yeah. uh, I've, cause I, I, I've always been fascinated by that. Just that the whole process of making a joint that is, mm. could potentially have no fastener or, or oh, glue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah. I, had, I had a practical, yeah. uh, a more technical uh, question about that. So yeah. I was watching this uh, episode again on the Wood Rice shop that day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it, it was titled Staked Furniture. And I think uh, Christopher Schwartz, you know who that is? I've heard the name. I don't. Uh, he, God, he's got a pretty good website. But anyways, I think he was one of the guests that um, Roy Underhill had on, on the show quite a bit. So there's the episode is called Staked Furniture. And they talk about, you know, the, the joint for, I think it was a stool that they were mm-hmm. making. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I made a few. And the way I made my joint was completely not, the way <laughs> that's code. Yeah, Christopher Schwartz shows the way that I guess the joint is supposed to be because he was using an auger as well as a reamer. Mm-hmm. So it was a tapered joint rather than like yep. what I do. It's just like, you know, I just use an auger and then yep. I I taper the the leg, you know, at the top where it's going into the mortise and then I wedge it. So he was using a reamer. So that that joint is just like, mm-hmm. you know. And then obviously yeah. it's just not gonna, it's not gonna go anywhere once you get it in there. Um, so is that something that you have experience with? Have you used a reamer as well as an auger or are your joints more simple than that? Um, the only time I've used the reamer was on that rustic Windsor chair where um, okay. the, the, the legs were um, fitted into a solid slab mm. seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and because in that case, yeah, you're getting all that surface contact and the wedging and you've got gravity that's holding it together. Right. Um, and so, you know, that just, I think, makes it that much stronger and has that much more, you know, contact between those surfaces. Right. Um, in, a, in a ladder back chair, there is some nuance to the joinery um, design and just construction but they're they're in my experience they're always cylindrical um holes that you're boring Um, okay and part of it comes down to um so a lot of it is understanding the way that wood changes in dimension with Mm -hmm. moisture content and so um one of the challenges that also kind of aligns with busy lifestyles is that you can't, if you want to build a, a really solid, long lasting greenwood chair, yeah. you can't just make the parts and put them together like that week. Right. Um, because as we know, the wood's going to shrink as it dries. And sure. that means that all of your tenons are going to get smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm guessing that there's a pretty high literacy in the the audience here, but the tenons being yeah. like the male piece that slots into the hole or the mortise right. on the, right. on the other end. So, right. you know, as wood shrinks, as wood dries, it shrinks. And that means that joint's going to loosen up and it's, it's not going to hold tight. And so, um, at the very least, it's really important that your rungs are good mm-hmm. and dry, the horizontals, mm-hmm. the, the smaller spindles. And when I'm talking rungs on these ladder back chairs, what we basically do is we'll fashion just like a three quarter inch cylinder. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the chair legs are usually roughed out to about an inch and three eighths. Okay. Um, and so like on a ladder back chair, you're basically making 
four pieces that are an inch and three eighths by 18 to 20 inches on the front leg and 36 inches or so for the back legs, maybe mm-hmm. 30 depending, um, or 48 depends on your design. And mm-hmm. then the rungs vary from about, you know, 15 to, to 18 or 20 inches. Um, right. and those again are like three quarter inch cylinders. So we're basically just making a bunch of cylinders, um, mm-hmm. that are two dimensions. And so, <clears throat> Like in the Mike Abbott class that I took, one of the things that was really interesting about his approach to green woodworking, this is a theme I've been thinking about a lot that maybe it's a tangent we'll revisit later, but is, yeah. is the, um, the intersection and the, the tension between art and science, mm-hmm. because I have a lot of appreciation for both. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you see someone that's been doing something for their entire lives, the science doesn't matter because mm-hmm. they just understand it like in their being they can right. they just do it their hands understand it and they know and they can look at it and say that's strong enough or that piece isn't going to work we don't need to run stress tests and calculate whatever look at tables we just <laughs> yeah you know you can tell and right. and that's kind of the way mike abbott approached it it was like he had books and we just picked out a chair in the book and right. decided what the dimensions were and he helped us figure mm. out what those angles were going to be um, mm-hmm. that form the seat. We, you know, just using like proportions would figure out what the dimensions were. Basically, it, I mean, it was super free form and, yeah. and like deep levels of craftsmanship that mm-hmm. allowed him to take a total novice, pick a chair out of a book without yeah. any plans and <laughs> basically make that chair. Yeah. And this isn't to like disparage the the more scientific approach and I, I don't know if it's science is the right word but or systematic maybe is is better like that um john alexander right. who also kind of introduced drew langsner to um ladderback chair making um whose name we haven't mentioned but i did have a chance to spend a little bit of time with john alexander who's now jenny alexander in in baltimore um but we kind of um standardized the process of making Mm. a really well-designed beautiful chair Mm. and and it's a very systematic approach which i find as a teacher is a really great way for students to learn because you're able to you know just kind of give them a series of steps yeah Uh, yeah. and so but at the end of the day it's like we all want to unleash our inner artist i feel Mm. like the science Mm -hmm. is the crutch that allows you to begin to hone your eye and your hands and just your being around what the end goal is. But science is also very limiting because it, it can never tell the whole truth because every life, you know, everything's more complicated than that. There's so many variables. And so, so like Mike Abbott's approach, we, we did put our chairs together out of green wood in a one week class. Um, and I think the joints still lasted, but we were kind mm-hmm. of breaking some rules in terms of what you would <laughs> right. normally think would work. Right. And so what we did was um, after the rung, we shaped the rungs first. And yeah. then pretty much right after, I think we put them in a, in a little wood fired kiln hmm. just to try to accelerate the drying, yeah. which I, again, I think in a perfect world, you'd want to wait till it's air dried because that can cause some structural issues within the wood by by drying it out too fast yeah um but he had found that like they just turned the tenons on the pole lathe 
and I forgot what he was, he uses, he calls it the impetric system, like a mix of imperial and metric. <laughs> so it was like, it's a 15 inch long rung, but it's got a 19 in 19 millimeter tenon. Um, and so, yeah, we, we turned the tenons to like, I think it was 19 millimeters. I can't remember exactly, but, and he'd found that they would basically shrink down to, I forget what it was, 15 and a half millimeters okay. or something. Huh. And he had a 15 and a half and he had a, what if maybe then he had a 15 millimeter drill bit i'm i'm, I'm vaguely literate in millimeter in metric so for anybody yes. that knows it well it's like that's totally not accurate at all whatever <laughs> yeah. but it was the the hole was slightly smaller than gotcha. the tenon yeah. Yeah. but so he just basically like but let it he just turned it to the right size and what we also know about wood shrinkage is that it doesn't shrink cylindrically it'll shrink mm -hmm. a cylinder as it dries, it's going to shrink to an oval because mm -hmm. wood shrinks differentially right. in the radial and the tangential plane. So right. mm -hmm. he used that to his advantage though, um, because he could anticipate that shrinkage and just orient the rung properly. Mm -hmm. And then literally just like pound that tenon in right, right, slightly yeah. oversized, but just enough oversized that, you know, it was going to bite in that joint and we didn't use any glue Mm -hmm. it wow. was a solid joint it wow. may loosen up over time it wouldn't loosen up probably if it was if everything was properly air dried to, to begin with but that was mm, right. you know within the context of the class mm. so i'm going to just contrast that with the strategy i now use because i did employ like when it came to developing my own approach i took a lot more of the practices i learned from drew langsner just because right. they kind of worked better for my process right. so the way that those classes run is like a cooking show and that you make the parts <laughs> for the next class that mm -hmm. are all out and oversized. And so, yeah. you know, that you're going to put together a, a chair out of air dried parts. Right. That's right. always a, a bit off putting to students because who knows whose parts you're going to get, you know, sure. you might sure. make really nice parts and then, but normally they're oversized enough and there's enough selection that you can find stuff that works. Nice. That's the only way to really get around making a chair out of air dried parts in mm. a week mm. that, yeah. you know, isn't going to shrink all um, unpredictably. Yeah. So either way, if I like now I've got, you know, 300 rungs that are all air dried, like in, in the rafters in my shop. Um, and so I can just pull from the supply at this point, you know, it's hard when you're getting started because nice. you're going to have to wait a few months or something. Right. But um, when I'm ready to put a chair together now, I just pull those rungs out. Mm -hmm. usually you know either uh nine to 12 rungs per chair generally and i i have a little styrofoam box that's um got a 100 watt light bulb in it and mm -hmm. in a rack that i can just set those rungs on and this is another drew langsner innovation he's got the plans for this it's super simple i just bought like one four by eight sheet of that um forget what they call the foam poly iso foam i think that's got the foil on it um, um yeah. just yeah. use duct tape mm -hmm. to fashion up the joints and and put a 100 watt light bulb in it and just loosely close the door and that'll keep it at about uh i forget what it is maybe 150 or something i forget what we go for maybe it's not even that high um mm -hmm. 120 degrees or something like that for four to seven days if you want to go the science route you just keep pulling a few sample rungs out and weigh them every you yeah, know after yeah. the first few days mm -hmm. and when they yeah, stop yeah. losing weight then you know that they're kiln dried yeah so we're kiln drying the rungs in this case 
but all the posts are just left air dried. And so mm. they're going to have a higher moisture content just because they're in the ambient air. Right. When you pull the rung out after it's air dried, that's when we put our tenons on it and you could turn them on a lathe. I usually just shape them with a spoke shave and then yep. just mm. check them with a dial gauge and, mm. or, and or some pre-drilled holes just to see if they fit. But again, we're making them slightly oversized. Mm. So um, a five eighth inch hole in, in uh, decimal is like 0. 0.625 inches, yeah. 625 thousandths. Mm -hmm. I don't think in thousandths, but like with my <laughs> dial gauge, you know, I'm just looking at it and I'm looking for 0. 0.640 roughly. So right. it's about that much bigger, 0. 0.640, okay. 0. 0.650. Um, and when, you know, you chamfer the, the edge of that tenon um, mm -hmm. before you pound it in, but when you pound that in, you can't take it out because it's too <laughs> it's big not, for yeah, the for deal. the hole. Right. But you know the the wood will deform on the um, on the the leg side. So as mm -hmm. long as it's not too big, you don't run the risk of blowing out the joint and you know causing it to split. Right. Um, right. And uh, and what actually Drew uses glue on his joints, like tight bond. Okay. And I've started doing it too, just because it's a little bit of insurance, but also right. because it's actually nice to have a little lubricant to help ease mm. it in. Oh, but sure. literally we're just using like a mallet, like a rubber mallet or a, a rawhide mallet and just pounding yeah. it in. Yeah, and yeah. you cannot physically remove that once it's right. in. It's, <laughs> it's in. I've had students yeah. that like put the leg on upside down or something like that. And it's like, well, okay, we, <laughs> there's always a way to fix stuff, but um sometimes you have to make a new one and redrill the holes and cut stuff mm -hmm. and make new rungs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a little more nuance I could share, but I, I know I've get, got given a lot of detail and, and talked for oh, a, awesome. a long that's period good. here. So that's good. That's great. Oh, yeah. No, it's, All it's, this it's... stuff is, is, is spelled out real clearly in the chairmakers workshop too, because yeah. hearing it and someone speaking it is so different than like seeing pictures or watching a video. Yeah. No, those I I think you did a great job. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I really want to start experimenting with that here and there. Yeah. Just do it, Mark. Yeah. I'm don't, going to. Don't over. I'm going to do yeah. it. Science it. <clears throat> just just do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't <laughs> science it. That's don't a good science slogan. it. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. just get your hands. Well, down. and so one other little thing that I will say about that too, though, is that if you made a cylinder that's 0.65 inches or whatever, just slightly mm -hmm. bigger than five eighths. Mm -hmm. um you do run the risk of it causing the the danger would be that you would form like a vertical split if it's too right. wide mm -hmm. you know if you're mm -hmm. if you're imagining like you're looking at a chair leg like you have a chair up on a table and you're looking at right. the joint um if if in in terms of the the top and bottom of the joint there's little risk that you're not going to split the wood if it's too big on top mm -hmm. and the bottom, but if it's too mm -hmm. wide from like left yeah. to right, it could yeah. cause a split. And so right. what we'll often do is kind of just relieve the, we call like relieve the cheeks of the tenon, the sides of the tenon so that mm -hmm. yeah. those are slightly smaller actually. And because if you think about the way that the, the stresses um, express themselves in the joint, it's, it's not on the sides at all. Like you can rock mm -hmm. back and forth in these chairs and yeah. they're solid. The joints don't move because, right. but all that's really bearing is the top and the bottom. It's not the mm -hmm. sides. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little, um, mechanism to kind of compensate and just prevent against this, like, you know, unintended splitting and right. that 
we also pay attention to the orientation of the fibers in the wood when you insert yeah, exactly the, the rung and that essentially the easiest way to describe it is so if you're looking at the end grain of the rung the mm -hmm. growth rings are parallel to the floor mm -hmm. right so they're yeah. running like left to right the growth yeah. rings yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes and yes. that's hard to explain the why without getting into all the shrinkage <laughs> stuff and sure. right. um but that there but it does it does theoretically make a difference and okay. so because mm -hmm. of that we you know we think think about it and respond accordingly and, mm. and with mike abbott's approach it's just going to shrink into an oval with those you know quote unquote cheeks of the tenon the sides mm. are already going to be relieved mm. they're going to be slightly smaller mm. um and so that just happens naturally with his approach mm. amazing so do you do you have uh any of your own chairs around your house I do. Uh, we have a lot. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> a lot. Of course. See that, and that's, that's the appeal for me is having this. Yeah. I just want them around. Cause like yeah. we have some ladder back chairs that were made. We inherited them from Allison's parents and um, they're, uh, they're nice, but they're not very comfortable. And I'm like, mm. Mm. I, no, I, I know <laughs> I can make a way more comfortable chair. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, the Jenny Alexander design that is the one in the, in the chair makers workshop yeah. um, is I, I feel like I'm not a super like chair connoisseur. I, I appreciate a good chair. I appreciate, you know, the, the craft and, and the engineering. Um, but her design is just like simple. It's elegant. It's strong. Um, but it's super lightweight. Mm. Apparently it's engineered to support 300 pound, like a 300 mm. pound person. Um, wow. and, and I believe that, um, Back in the day, there was a video that she made um, called, uh, what is the name of the video? I can't remember. Um, I'll think of it probably later. But if you if you look up probably either John or Jelly, uh, Jenny Alexander, um, Ladderback Chairs, fantastic like start to finish video that'll describe okay. a lot of what I just said as well. Um, nice. and I bet like I had, I bought the VHS tape back in you know, 2001 <laughs> awesome. and converted it to DVD at some point. And now I think it's probably all up on YouTube, but, um, nice. but I would say that that it is though, you're, you're a, a taller guy, Mark. So it might be a little yeah. small for your frame is the mm -hmm. thing. Cause it's, it's compact, okay. but, um, but what the, one of the reasons why I, I didn't keep, um, pursuing chair making as a, as a like full-time livelihood was there's so much to designing something that um, there's a lot of like weight on, on developing something that's checks off all these boxes that it's yeah. strong, um, nice to look at and comfortable. And right. it's, it's not always easy on like a prototype to, to turn that out. And so I found that I wasn't kind of nurturing that creative side of like develop. I did several variations on designs but mm. they didn't all turn out good yeah. and um and i just for whatever reason just felt less drawn to kind of continuing to play with that um this chair that i'm describing this design again it's it's just this kind of perfect balance of um you know they probably only weigh like five or six pounds oh, wow. um, but Dang. they're super especially before you put the seat on it like they feel like you know they're nothing but um and and the way that there's a slight steam bend in the back rungs or in, mm -hmm. yeah, in the back legs. And then we use just uh, boiling water to bend the slats mm. and where the slats are, they kind of catch your lumbar 
and your, you know, your lower shoulders, like in the perfect spot. And they make it comfortable to sit with good posture. Hmm. Um, Cause a lot of times people sit in them and I see them slouching, you know, and it's like, <laughs> no, no, you got to sit back, like yeah. get your butt in the back end of the, um, of the seat. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you just feel it, you feel supported. And like I said, you can kind of rock in it and, and you're not, you know, damaging the chair. It's, it's, it's that strong. So that, that's a great design to start with, mm. but you may need to adjust it a little bit, like for your own body. Sure. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. proportions. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Nice. Um, yeah. well, I would love to chat with you a little more about, uh, getting to some of the coppice woodwork because our last mm-hmm. guest was this woman, uh, Rosie Rendell, and she's a full-time coppice woodworker over in South uh, south of England, she does hedge laying and uh, hazel coppicing. Um, and uh, I mentioned in that in that interview uh, the book you're working on, which is mm-hmm. uh, refresh me on the title again because I, I uh, it's watch it. it's coppice agroforestry, tending trees for product profit and woodland ecology. Awesome, and nice. New Society Publishers that's that's publishing it. So um, from what I understand, you spent a lot of time focusing on the context of coppice agroforestry in the North American landscape. Um, That's that right? the intention is that it's a manual for like temperate North America. Awesome. Yep. Nice. So um, yeah. we kind of went over what coppicing is, some of the you know practices that surround that. But one thing that we, we didn't really get into is kind of the history of coppicing. Yeah. Where did it originate and what is the expanse of the practice? Like how, how far and wide is it used across the, the world? Yeah. So um, we will probably never know, you know, the, the origins of the practice because, um, I, it certainly, so, you know, the way, um, coppicing as a practice in a lot of ways is, is cultural, you know, it implies that Mm -hmm. we are intentionally disturbing a plant usually by, in the case of coppicing, just cutting it to ground level and allowing it to re-sprout. But in a lot of ways, that's just like a human induced mimic of, Mm many other types of natural disturbance and you know in in the book there's a little sidebar you know contemplating whether beavers might have been the inspiration Mm. that led Mm. early humans to to learn to coppice because that's what you know beavers do um but fire is also a tool that um again whether human induced or not will stimulate that sprouting yeah and so it's hard to know like did humans develop coppicing or did they basically just kind of benefit from the products that emerged as a result of that disturbance and and subsequent regrowth so the earliest evidence that we've encountered um the historically of of coppice practice dates back about i think nine thousand years um and that is I don't have all the numbers like definite definitively yeah, in my head, fine. but um, there's, there's a couple of archeological excavations. Usually these are kind of coastal finds because like along coastlines because yep, yep. wood rots. And so, you know, the evidence of wood in human civilization is really limited to places where it was submerged by water mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. was, was unable to decompose. And that's a really interesting like bigger thread in this kind of historical ecology realm is that, mm. you know, a lot of times it, it, it's forgotten as, right, as a material right. just because we don't have, it. We, we see the stone, you know, we go to, you can go to Machu Picchu or yeah. Chichen Itza and like, you see these magnificent constructions, but yeah. 
wood was ubiquitous throughout you know, mm. basically anywhere where trees grew, people would have used wood for all sorts of things. And yeah, it's rare that we find like actual relics that demonstrate that. And so in these two cases, one is along the, the Danish coast and another, um, mm. I think near du- modern Dublin, mm. um, essentially what they uncovered was these, um, what, what, what they call wattle, which is like a woven framework of sticks with verticals yeah. and, and horizontals right. and right. hazel was you know and still is often the preferred species for that mm-hmm. um and so you know they basically found these woven wattle weirs um a weir being uh basically a construction used to aid in fishing um mm. in this mm. these cases i think they were essentially like funneling fish and in, in another case it was eel um oh, into yeah. Yeah, traps and so like a kind of at high tide, you know, they, they get the fish or eels would be corralled by these weirs. Um, and so then as the tide receded, it'd be really easy to collect and harvest the fish. And based on just the sheer volume of, Hmm. of rods of hazel rods Hmm. that were used in this construction, coupled with the regularity of their diameter and the quality of them, like their relative straightness, Hmm that's what kind of led these archeologists to say, Hey, they must have had some sophisticated way of procuring this volume of materials. Cause you're talking uh, like hundreds of thousands of rods that would have been required to do this, that, you know, every, insane. you know, five to 15 years would have needed to be renewed as well. Right, and, right. and so the other piece of this, and one of the reasons why coppicing is so um, was so valuable uh, a management tool for people back in the day especially was trees rarely will grow perfectly straight um and you still won't get necessarily perfectly straight growth with coppicing but you tend to get much straighter growth than you would if you harvested just kind of an unmanaged wild stem um so this is one of the reasons why you know it's persisted in the basketry trade um Mm -hmm. up until modern times like that's it's pretty much the best way to make more or less perfectly straight, unblemished, undamaged, mm-hmm. unbranched materials for basketry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they just kind of reverse engineered based on the findings that, yeah, they must have had some way of engaging with patches of wild vegetation and harvesting it because it, w- it met these needs perfectly and they needed a huge amount of materials mm. to, to, to do this. And so then how many other realms right, was right. coppicing employed? Hard to say, but probably most of them, because the other piece about it is, and this is a term, I don't know if, if your last guest got into this a little bit, but in, in the UK, at least the, the terms timber and wood historically mm. have described different resources. Oh, interesting. Timber being like large diameter, like what we'd call saw logs today. Yeah, yeah. Um, large diameter trees grown to maturity that would be harvested and processed into lumber. Sure. Whereas wood is what we usually just call pole wood today, you know, right, which right. could be as small as rods to poles and rods are kind of your, your two main products from the coppice, the poles yep. being, you know, let's say three inches and larger, generally not much bigger than 10 inches. Um, and then the rods being anything smaller that you'd use mm. for woven crafts and, and things like that. Um, and so if you think about the tools and the technology available to people of that era, 
you know, they were using stone axes. Right. And so cutting down a big oak tree and then skidding it to the sawmill, like were not <laughs> options for people in that day and age. You know, it it was many centuries before they'd even developed saws as, right. as technology. So riving was the most efficient way and the only way really to, hmm. to process wood along its length. Hmm. And, um, and so these smaller diameter materials just were perfectly sized and suited to their needs and their capabilities. So those are some of the reasons why like hmm. it, it was prominent historically speaking. And it, then as far as like the, the extent of the practice, which is the second part of your question. Um, the evidence that I have in the book is really limited largely to uh, Europe, um, parts of the United of modern United States. Okay. Um, and maybe a little bit, I think on Japan, although that section oh. was kind of incomplete. And so I didn't, I don't think that actually made it into the final print. Oh, okay. Um, but it's very likely that every single continent had variations mm. on this theme. And um, it just became, you know, chapter one of the book is the, the cultural history of, of coppice agroforestry. Oh, cool. nice. And, um, but it's very limited again to these okay. two continents. I think you know, it, it would be a whole book in and of itself yeah, to, yeah. to explore this, but without a doubt it's practiced in Africa Um South America, you know, mm -hmm. Asia, basically anywhere that trees grew, yeah, I'm yeah. sure humans have found ways to manage for sprouts. Mm. And there's other reasons too, because they might've been growing fodder, you know, the, the uh -huh. leaves for their yeah. animals that they could either dry and store like we would hay today, yeah. uh, which they also did, but, um, and, or it could be, you know, lopped and fed fresh to the animals um, as they move through a landscape, which like in the Mediterranean climate types that's especially mm -hmm. valuable mm -hmm. because in the summer months it gets really hot and the grass yeah. growth slows down quite a bit so both the shade and the extra fodder are valuable so there's a, there's a lot of different directions that these materials um hmm. you know can find utility yeah i remember um one of the presentations you gave at, at one of the permaculture courses we taught in uh there was, you had some photos like from, cause you've, you, you've been to, uh, was it Norway or, um, I'm trying to remember you went, maybe either you went or you, you got information from somewhere where they had some really old, uh, pollarded plantings that were used for like fodder mm -hmm. and so on. Um, yeah, I, I've, um, I've been to, uh, Sweden, but I actually didn't visit any okay. examples of, of these practices there, but there's, there's some good research, um, there's a number of, of folks who've been, you know, both exploring the historical practices and, you know, the modern application um, mm. in Norway and Sweden. And yeah, you'll see these landscapes that to a certain degree are still um, being maintained. And mm. I, I believe uh, I always struggle to say Costa's last name, but Costa Bustacaris. Yeah, yeah. yep. I don't know if you've mentioned him in the podcast before, but no, he's got a fantastic video series called Woodlanders. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, he's, um, just super talented, like visual storyteller. Yeah. Um, and he's traveled around the world, basically chronicling in these kind of 15, 20 minute vignettes, all these different, a lot of the things we've already talked about, you can find. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and um, so for, for listeners, check out Woodlanders, Costa B. Yeah. I'll put a link and in a very there. Greek last name. Um, <laughs> 
and yeah, I, never, um, I never know how to say it either. <laughs> yeah, um, but um, where was I going with that? We were talking about the. I always say pollards, but I think technically it is pol or pollards or pollarded trees. I say pollard just because it rolls off my tongue more yeah. easily. So I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna uh, pronunciation check you live on air here. But um, it's all good. You know, I can handle potato, it. potato, potato. Well, again, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's what I do. Yeah, uh, no. that's how I say it. But um, yeah, so you'll see these basically, like in the case of the trees you're talking about, they were they were training or pruning these trees to optimize their production of leaf mm -hmm. for animal feed. So it's kind of a whole new take on like you know the act of pruning because we don't normally think about the leaves as having value. But as a crop mm -hmm. for yeah for a lot of these you know traditional more kind of peasant agrarian um land management practices that was just an essential part of being able to subsist throughout the season with your livestock mm. and, and, um, and essentially it the it's very similar pollarding or pollarding to coppicing um, whereas with coppicing you're basically cutting the tree at ground level right with mm -hmm. pollarding you are you're stimulating sprouts, but out in the canopy. So yep. the point of disturbance, the severity of the disturbance is different because right, you've, right. you've allowed the tree to kind of express itself. And if anyone's ever traveled in Europe and even where you guys are in, in you know, Southeastern United States, it's, it's, it's not an uncommon practice. Yeah, you'll it's see it in common, people's yeah. yards. And a lot of times, I don't even think people know why they're doing it <laughs> down really there. It's a, yeah, it's very funny, actually. It's just they've yeah. done it. That's just how you, you know, they're just pruning the tree basically. Yeah. And um, it's, it looks extreme too. For example, um, they do it a lot with crepe myrtle, which is a super mm -hmm, common mm -hmm, ornamental. Mm -hmm. Um, but also with maple trees I've noticed. Um, and it's, it, it, when I first saw it, I was like, that's even worse yet. They do it to like fruit trees. It's very interesting. It's a super mm -hmm. common practice where people just like, well, trees too big. So I'm just going to cut the top off and. Um, so yeah, you'll see, I, I'm thinking of actually a neighbor of mine who has this big old multi-stem maple tree and it's just like, you know, the, the main stems go out maybe like 20, 30 feet in the air and then they stop and then it's just a bunch of re-sprout and, mm -hmm. and every like five, six years, they probably, you know, cut it back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. Um, and that's something that I don't know how much craft material is harvested from that type of practice from what I've understood. It's always either that case where it's like a, it's just a cultural practice for aesthetics, I guess. Um, or it's like you're saying for, for fodder or, um, yeah, animal feed or, or just for keeping a, a tree from getting too large. Right. Firewood apparently, you know, would okay. so generally like fodder would have been managed on like a three to seven year rotation. Mm. Um, and then a longer rotation of like 10 to 15 years would generally be for firewood. Okay. Um, and, and um, the main, so, and of course, if there were materials that were suitable for craft, then they yeah. would be used for that. But sure, um sure. Oftentimes you're going to get like straighter stock um, that's probably more adaptable to a lot of craft by coppicing. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. one of the other reasons why one would use pollarding as a tool rather than coppicing would be that you could graze animals in the understory mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. having to be worried about them browsing on the young shoots from a exactly. coppice stool. A stool right. is a stump that's being managed for the coppice sprouts. 
Um, and so the, the, the term in the UK is wood pasture, um, the mm. landscape where there are scattered trees, which now we call it silvopasture, basically. Right. But yeah. um, wood pasture usually implies, you know, pollarded trees. Mm. Um, Interesting. And, uh, yeah. And there's, there's one thing that popped in my head is there's, I think, so uh, we were talking about this, uh, well, it's kind of two pronged. Um, a lot of our guests are from the UK. There's a huge presence of green woodworkers in the UK. And it's also where there's some of the most, you know, widespread use of coppicing at a commercial scale. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm always wondering like, why is it, why is it not used, you know, in Ireland and I think several other places where it's, it's still pretty actively used to generate income, you know, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thought that has come to my mind is if you look historically at, uh, England, they have a long history of, uh, basically common access and common resources. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and so I've, I don't know if I've read this somewhere, maybe you put it in my head, Mark, um, that <laughs> a lot of these practices, for example, harvesting firewood from pollarded, um, or pollarded, <laughs> pollarded uh, trees. I think you're right, actually, and I'm wrong, but I'm just stubborn. So <laughs> um, that that would have also tied into this cultural uh, element of shared resources. So instead of cutting a tree down for firewood, you would mm. just manage you would manage resprout so that you have a perpetual harvest of that material. Right. Um, yep. Whereas you know, say here in North America, where there's you know the private uh, land ownership. Um, you don't have to worry about that. If you have trees, you just cut them down, they regrow. Yep. And you know, it's a very laissez-faire type of attitude towards trees and, mm -hmm. and just any woody plants in general. Right. Um, yep. I don't know if that, if that's something you've come across at all or thought about. Uh, I think that that there's, yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's definitely truth to, to what you're describing. And also, I mean, I always have to step back and, and analyze whether or not I'm the, the narratives I tell myself or I've come to believe are <laughs> myths or they're true. Mm. And I think for a lot of it, we don't know. But when I think for myself about the history of, you know, the Eastern forests in modern, you know, United States, I imagine the, the colonists arriving here and, you know, just being overwhelmed with this embarrassment of riches yeah. again in terms of just like established forest like so oliver rackham is is a is a pretty well known and and um well published historical ecologist from england and he's written a number of really awesome books about the um the evolution of managed landscapes in the mm. british isles and he says that about 2000 years ago half of all of the old growth forests in modern britain had been cleared mm. and um a thousand years ago, essentially there was no old growth left. Oh, wow. So, you know, you, hmm. even in like the, the 13th or 14th, 15th century, there were, you know, major resource shortages that were mm -hmm. like the, the British were importing timber from Scandinavia back then. Sure. And that's See, partly why, <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, the masonry heater was developed as a response to resource mm -hmm. shortages. And that's also some of the pressures that pushed Europeans to, um, to leave. you know, to, yeah, to, to move to greener pastures, so to speak. And so, God. um, I am, so they were already in a resource limited landscape to begin sure. with. And so like eking every possible, um, you know, yield from the landscape was, was really essential there. Yep, Whereas yep. here it was like, people needed to, 
plant crops and like open right. up pastures and 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 you know transform the landscape a bit and you were you know surrounded by mature canopy trees right and right. so um you know i've i i really love a lot of um oh what's his name uh um, americana type author eric sloan's work yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, eric and and there's a, a graphic he's got in there that's talking about um you know early american colonists burning upwards of 30 cords of wood a winter oh my god um, <laughs> which i forgot i think that was essentially like clearing roughly an acre of land oh my um, god and that was probably just not to die you know, because yeah. the houses were super drafty and, yeah. you know, that was probably to just like, not to be warm and like comfortable, <laughs> but to yeah. survive. Yeah, um, yeah. And so very likely these clearance practices would have caused coppicing because coppice yeah. just happens. It's a sprouting response that basically all deciduous broadleaf yeah. plants will do. Um, but I and, and of course, like if there's something that's useful for a tool handle or for, you know, building poles or whatever, yeah. they would have been used for such. But, you know, it doesn't take long for some of these practices to just completely disappear from yeah. history. And mm -hmm. so I think probably it did persist and it mm. did happen. But was it how intentional was it? It certainly mm. wasn't as... Um, as highly organized as it had become in Europe hmm. because of a lot of the reasons you described with private land ownership and, right. you know, a, a lack of, you know, the commons and yeah. also this um, relatively like newly cleared and transformed landscape. Hmm. Um, whereas there, you know, some of these ancient coppice stands, they've been managed continuously for 500 years or a thousand yeah. years back there and so these things go way way back and oh, cool. and we just don't have that that tradition here yeah. and amazing. and just to couch this because if i don't make this point um later i want to make this point now in case i don't make it later which is that uh i think it's really important to be clear that i'm not trying to imply that this is in any way a superior practice than sure. mm -hmm. good forest management mm -hmm. um and that the materials are necessarily any better. They're better for certain applications. Yeah, and yeah. this practice is more appropriate in certain contexts, but you know, good sustain, like it, in, in a lot of our woods, I can't see patches where it would make sense to apply mm -hmm. coppicing um, with any significant intention because we've got what, what, you know, in forestry we would call like some nice uneven aged stand mm -hmm. structure like it's already diverse there's big canopy trees and there's some yeah. understory and and that is super valuable for wildlife for all sorts of ecosystem functions and because in this day and age we have a lot more value placed in timber as a resource right. than in this polewood economy right. Right. and so some of the most valuable places i see coppicing fitting into people's practice would be on these kind of scrubby margins where mm -hmm. a lot of times we have quote unquote invasive species that are kind sure. of encroaching, you know, vacant lots, overgrown, just scrublands and old fields, um, mm -hmm. as well as like, you know, perhaps new plantings that you're going to mm -hmm. establish because I want this species because it's really useful for this purpose. Sure. Um, and so there may be applications where you say, Hey, like I want to convert this patch of oak and hickory into a coppice stand. Mm -hmm. But um, 
but I think it becomes more nuanced because of just where we are in history and the resources we already have and not yeah. to kind of, um, not to forsake the, because in Europe, the challenge for a lot of these long managed landscapes is reestablishing mm-hmm uneven aged, healthy, diverse forest mm-hmm. that we've in a lot of cases can easily take for granted here. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's actually something I wanted to ask you about. Cause you have a great under- understanding of forestry. Um, and this is an aspect of like the slow green woodworking that is often unaddressed is, you know, what is a healthy forest? What does it look like to manage for your materials in a long-term mm-hmm. way, especially when we're talking about timber and, you know, say for hickories or, or oaks or, or any of the larger species. Um, and this is, we've harped on this, I think a lot, just talking about, you know, the, the, the mindset is that a forest is a forest. And what a lot of people don't realize is that's not the case. There's, there's a gradient of, of, of health and diversity and and functionality in a forest Mm -hmm. from, you know, what I would call, what I would say most of the North American forest landscape is basically like a low, a low level of, of health and quality material mm-hmm. due to a lack of management. Um, yep. whereas when I hear these stories, I haven't, I have never actually seen like a, a, a truly healthy established forest, but I've heard stories. Uh, there's one in Wisconsin, I forget it's managed by a tribe. Um, and the Menominee tribe, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I've heard it's one of the most breathtaking places to go. It's like a mm. truly, a truly what a old growth forest would look like if it was managed properly. Wow. Um, so yeah, can you speak to that a little bit? Just what forest management entails and, and, and the implications of doing it or not doing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it's basically a design process. And, um, you know, the foundation of, of design is goals and, and like site analysis, understanding the site. And so the landowner goals are ultimately going to drive your design. And it's not to say that we all have the same ethics. I think there are certain things that we should kind of hold common in terms of, um, you know, appropriately scaled impact. Um, mm. which is to kind of, I'm dancing around saying that like a clear cut as a practice is something that a lot of us have come to see as being just like wholesale devastation of a landscape, Sure, mm-hmm. but a clear cut can also be a practice that mimics a natural disturbance event, like yep. a forest fire or a landslide, um, or a windstorm. Right. So, um, so the landowner goals, because that is the steward of that's ultimately the person who's going to be driving the management um, are, are huge in informing like what's most appropriate uh, on the landscape. And sometimes, you know, landowners don't necessarily even know what their goals are yet because they're not well equipped enough. Um, But that's, that's a a key piece to begin with. And then the other part is going to be, you know, a detailed analysis of your site. And Mm -hmm. so that's looking at what species are already there. Like what sort of diameter are they? Um, are they in good relative health are, do they look like they're, you know, stressed and struggling? Are you on a North facing slope or an East facing slope? What are the soils like? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different qualities of the landscape that are also going to tell you a lot about what it's capable of, um, what the challenges are that you're facing, what could be working better, um, or what's not working well at the moment. Yeah. Right. Um, and if you were to kind of map out the, the, 
the range of forestry practices, we break them into two main categories, which would be, you know, even and uneven aged management uh, structures. And so I, I already described the uneven aged forest stand, which is yeah. um, one that's multi-storied and structurally very diverse. It's got old trees, young trees, and hopefully, you know, age classes in between. And then you've got the even age stands, which essentially mean that everything grew up from the same point in time. And that's yeah, basically yeah. what coppicing does in its historical sense is that you, <laughs> you would create a patch scale clear cut, you know, cut a quarter to a half an acre or so um, at a time minimum um, to open up a big enough patch to let a bunch of light in so that you'll get, you know, this healthy flush of new growth. Hmm. I'm about, I see our midwife is just walking in and the dogs are about to go buck wild. Can I pause for a second <laughs> yeah, sure, so yeah. that we don't get all this background noise? So I guess, you know, there's obviously there's so much detail that goes into it, but what are some basic principles that people can have in their minds? Obviously, aside from the goals and, and all everything you're working with, you know, species, soil type, all that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what are just some basic principles that people could, that are managing woodlands or have some, a little bit of forest on their property? Mm -hmm. that they could, yeah. that they could implore to, um, you know, improve whatever they have and get closer to something that they they're shooting for. Yeah. So, um, picking up on both where I kind of left off when we took our little break, along with a, a theme that you mentioned a minute ago, Mark, the idea of these kind of, um, unmanaged and often overstocked woods that Yep. are kind of the norm here and 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 also just taking a quick step back and and mentioning mm. when we look at the legacy of the forests of today they're by and large a process a product of what's called high grading which yep. essentially is taking the best and leaving the worst mm. and so you know if you imagine from like a genetic selection point of view that is right. the complete antithesis of what you <laughs> want to do um, yeah. in order to leave it does continually improve on the quality of the resources you've got. And right. so, you know, over the last three, 400 years, you know, we think about multiple, um, multiple harvests of our forests. And again, what often were left after the harvest were the trees that were the most crooked or the lowest quality species or yeah. um, diseased or dying or whatever. And, you right. know, over time that does start to kind of undermine that genetic base. So I would say yeah. the first thing, you know, if you're really thinking like about the long-term health and vitality of your forests would be to leave the nicest quality individuals right. as, as genetic stock for the next iteration of your forest stand. That's a good point. And so just, you know, upgrading or, um, I, I don't know what the term actually is. That's the antithesis to high grading. Cause it's not low grading. You're, you're leaving yeah. the best in this I've, case. I've always used the term timber stand improvement. Yes. Yep. And, and so that is another term I was going to use. Um, okay. I tend to think of timber stand improvement also being one of um, targeted removal of stems mm, yeah. because what, what's coupled with the timber stand improvement is that, you know, I, I often liken it to, you know, a, a bed of carrots and you've seeded out this bed of carrots and you've got amazing germination. And now you have, you know, every 16th of an inch or eighth of an inch, you've got this little carrot that's um, poking out of the ground and starting to grow. And 
I don't know if this is actually true, but let's say just for the purpose of sake of our argument that you grew those carrots to maturity and you harvested them and you weighed them and you had five pounds worth of carrot, but yeah. they're not even baby carrots. You know, they're teeny tiny little spindly things that <laughs> barely give a crunch. You know, there's, <laughs> there's just nothing to them, but you still have all this volume as opposed to if you went along and you thin them. So every two inches, you've got a carrot that, you know, is able to grow or three inches or whatever is able to, you know, develop a nice healthy tap root. And, um, and you add all that volume up, well, you'd probably end up with more volume too, because they were each able to, you know, grow to, to kind of full maturity, but it's also just going to be much more valuable. The, 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 the distribution of that biomass is, just way more useful to you. Mm -hmm. And that, that's really, I think, a good analog to mm -hmm. timber stand improvement practices in the forest, because after, you know, it may have been 30 or 60 years ago for a lot of people that their, their land was last cleared yeah. and no one went in there and did any thinning or selection. Right. And so now you might have, like what you were talking about with some of these um, patches of hickory or uh, I think it was hickory at yep. your place yep. where yep. you've got all these little carrots, these metaphorical carrots growing <laughs> up and they're all like crowding one another out and nobody's doing great. Everybody's, you know, competing for the same resources. And so right. when I think of timber stand improvement, um, it's about this targeted selection. So in this case, you're choosing the straightest stem, the one that mm -hmm. looks the healthiest um, and you're removing a lot of the competition around it and you're releasing that tree so that it's able to um, colonize that niche in space because the, the, the foundation of this concept is that like a given acre is, you know, all of the variables that go into productivity, soil type, hydrology, sun um, are more or less the same on that patch of land. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, in forestry, we talk about it using a, a figure called the site index, which is like, mm. how tall should trees get on this soil type at 50 years? Mm. And the higher the site index, the more productive the site. Okay. But what this comes down to is, again, is it, is it going to be spread out through all these tiny little spindly stems? Or yeah. is it going to be, you know, 15 or 20, like healthy saw logs at yeah. maturity? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we're to kind of borrow from the permaculture lingo, we're, we're accelerating succession right. by going in there and doing some of this intentional selection and thinning. Right. Um, so that, you know, even though we would have grown the same amount of wood, instead of it being distributed in this like 32nd of an inch new growth ring around all of these tiny little trees, mm. instead, you know, it's a, it's an eighth of an inch on every tree yeah. on a lot fewer trees, the same amount of biomass produced, but it's distributed differently. Mm -hmm. And, um, and one of the tools that you could use to do that, cause it is, it feels a little arbitrary. This is again, that kind of art versus science thing right. is um, they make what are called for like a forestry prism, which is with, I, I have to get into a lot of detail to describe what <laughs> it is, but it's, it's a way of basically getting a, a point in time measurement of the density of your stand. Mm. And so that both gives you a baseline of where you're at. And then it also can inform, well, how many trees should I remove in order to bring this stand to better density? Because mm. without experience or without some numbers, you're just kind of, you know, working in a somewhat haphazard way. 
and maybe that's fine, but um, a prism, and you know, that's a tool you can buy it from forestry suppliers. And if you go online on YouTube and look up how to use a prism, you can understand the, the foundation. But I found that to be a good way for me to understand how to do some timber stand improvement thinning in an informed way, as opposed mm. to what might otherwise be a little arbitrary. Okay. Um, one of the challenges with timber stand improvement is that it's what, you know, in forestry we'd call a non-commercial intervention, right. meaning that most of these materials have no value. Um, and so there's, there's no financial incentive for people to go in and do this work. Sure. Um, yeah. it's, it's a long-term projection yield. And this is where to tie it back into coppicing a little bit, you know, a big piece of the relevance of coppicing, I think is developing a pole wood economy. Yeah. Because what you were generally talking like in our, in our patch of woods, we have a bunch of areas where there's, you know, kind of five to eight inch diameter hemlocks that mm -hmm. are, you know, doing what we were just talking about, kind of battling it out for the same resources. And I could remove, you know, 12 or 15 those per acre perhaps or even more without really impacting the health of the stand or over harvesting but you're not going to i mean i can make a four by four out of those if i was to <laughs> turn it into wood but it's it's not even worth the effort you know most people would just drop them and leave them on the ground which that has value too sure. you know, just you know adding to the deadwood resource in the forest is is hugely valuable for the hydrology and for wildlife um but if I can kind of shift my perspective and think, well, what can I do with this resource? So now I'm thinking about, well, I can make rustic furniture out of these. Mm -hmm. And that's where like, you know, I have to be a little more fluid with what I think about as like green woodworking, because sure. in the pole wood economy, you're not getting like for making chairs, ideally I'm, I'm starting off with like a 15 or 18 inch, you know, perfect timber, like veneer quality oak log, and I'm splitting it out because as the tree gets older, the new layers of wood are very, uh, tend to be very clear and have minimal knots. And so that's yeah. like really high quality wood. Whereas like on a smaller tree, you'll have a lot of branches that persist sure. and you'll have knots throughout. Um, so some of this, like in the UK, they are still using coppice wood in a lot of cases to make mm -hmm. these greenwood crafts. But mm -hmm. because we have nice timber trees here, it's like what I'll usually do is I just go to a local sawmill and I can pick out a log from the pile sure. and I don't have to cut mm -hmm. a tree, skid it. I don't have to take my, my beautiful like legacy oak tree down mm -hmm. um, to make chairs out of it. I can leave it. Um, and so instead now I've got this hemlock and I'm like, well, what can I make from this? And so that's where, you know, you can kind of shift that equation from it being a non-commercial intervention to something that actually has value because you find the utility in it through your mm -hmm. creativity, your skill. And so it may be that, you know, you make spoons primarily, but now because you have this abundance of another resource, you start to, you know, work from the other direction and think, well, I have these skills and this resource, what can I make that I see a need or a demand for in my mm. community? Yeah. Um, and that's where I think also like a lot of these themes we've been discussing become relevant is like imagination is another permaculture principle is like, you know, mm -hmm. permaculture is information and imagination intensive. Mm -hmm. And, and so you know, yield is theoretically unlimited. It's all in our ability to recognize it and then, you know, create it.
So some of the things, again, probably the best things just to, to kind of double back on this thread, answering your question, leaving the nicest trees, um, ideally as just producing seed for yeah. the next generation of the stand, doing like targeted thinning and timber stand improvement, meaning that you're, mm -hmm. you're selecting lower quality stems, like in, in the, the realm of ecoforestry, one of the foundational tenets is um, the needs of the forest always come first, hmm. which means right. that, like that, you know, for the yeah. next generation or two, it's like, we're always harvesting the lowest quality stuff. Right. And then because we have these skills, cause we're, you know, craftspeople, again, it comes back to like, well, what can I do with this material that I have already? And so that's mm -hmm. where that imagination piece comes in. A couple other little like bullet points from like a good management perspective would be establishing good access is mm -hmm. fundamental. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, we often see, you know, the impact of logging as hugely destructive in the landscape, but especially in these like humid Eastern forested landscapes within a season or two, you know, it's just a, a flush of, of green. Yeah. Um, it rebounds it. quickly, but the impact of extraction of roads, of the interruption of drainage ways lasts far longer, causes yeah. streams to silt up, causes mm -hmm. erosion of soils. And so having, you know, good permanent access in some cases that's well-designed at a low angle, um, so it's not steep, um, provides good drainage off the road right. um, and gets you where you need to go without fragmenting too much of the woods is is kind of a foundation mm. Mm. um of that uh, 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 uh of your management plan that's great and yeah. uh and then well i got a sorry barking dog going on here in the background it's distracting <laughs> me but uh oh access and there's one or two other points, but maybe, I don't know if I've talked too much on this. I'm guessing you probably have to edit this little snippet out. So, oh, that's um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, other, other good things. Um, no, that's, that's a great point because I mean, this, this is something that one of the reasons that this podcast, I think is so valuable to the community of Sloyd green woodworkers, whatever you want to call it is that we really like to try to tease out some of these details that, that aren't, you know, when you see someone carving a spoon or turning a bowl, like right. yeah, you're seeing the end product. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot, even if you're not managing a woodland, there's this whole process that goes into that material existing in the first place. Right. And it's easy to forget, you know, where your material comes from. Sure. Even yeah. as a green woodworker, I mean, I right. oftentimes will get wood just dumped in my lap right? and I didn't have to do anything to get it. So it was, you know, yeah. it was ex excess from someone else's, you know, firewood or whatever they were doing. Right. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of people. So I think this is just so important to, to, cause these are these, to get into this information, it's not readily available. Like to study forestry is such a lengthy process and right. there's not yeah. a lot of good books. There's not a lot of good information. Really. It's not a cultural practice that we have, you know, like, like you mentioned Eric Sloan earlier. Um, I forget which book it is. He has, I mean, all of his books are so, I love all of them so much, but there's one, um, where he's, 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 he's kind of like going, it's kind of imaginative. He's going back in time and like talking about, you know, what would an early American's life have been like, you know, the practices and the flow of the season and, and, and what you're talking about now, this would have been embedded in just our day-to-day -day knowledge. It wouldn't be 
you, we would grow up immersed in this experience. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, understanding forestry and understanding, creating good access and and all this stuff to just be second nature, just, you know, just like a good craftsman knows how to, you know, knows exactly the the diameter of the rung and all that stuff. Um, so I think it's valuable to touch on these subjects because just to, they need to resurface so that we can, I don't know, bring it. There's, we're trying to build a connection between, you know, the end product, the spoon and the bowl and where that material comes from and the overall impact yep. it has on our life and the woodland. So exactly. Yeah. Um, I, w- I guess one other point I would just make kind of guide a landowner's eye and, and um, planning is this has really been uh, sinking in for me in the last couple of years, just trying to navigate our woods. We've got 40 acres of woods mm. and it's overwhelming to walk yeah. through it. And we've focused a lot of our energy on, on our plantings and our, you know, more sure. farm enterprise. And I usually, especially having built our infrastructure and all that, it's like only in this last like year or so have I, f- well, the last few years, have I been able to invest a little bit of energy usually in the winter to our, to our forest. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, that you know, forest management, with some exceptions, is is a patch scale endeavor. Mm. Um, you want to have a, a understanding of the whole, but you can't plan necessarily all at once for what you're going to do about the whole. So sure. I think like the easiest thing, because again, it can be so overwhelming, is to find an area that you can get to easily already. You have good access because if you're going to harvest materials, you have to get them out. And yeah, I've right. been you know, I've done a lot of hand hauling of like pole wood on my shoulder, but once you get into saw logs and stuff, like you need yeah. equipment. Yeah. Um, so start something close that you can get to readily mm-hmm. and just look at that patch. And, you know, I tend to think of, you know, if an acre as a number is really hard to wrap my head around, but if I think of myself in the center of an acre, if I look a hundred feet in any direction and imagine that square, that's essentially one acre, you know, it's yeah. about 208 by 208 feet. Yeah. And, you know, so if you can kind of take it on, even at a half acre, you know, and you say, okay, well, what trees are growing here? Look at each one, get to know, and just keep walking through it. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, sure. you, when in doubt, do nothing and just keep mm-hmm. observing. Mm-hmm. But often just like pruning a tree, because that is really what a lot of this uneven age management is. It's pruning at the stand scale or the patch mm-hmm. scale. So yeah. take out the lowest quality tree. And then maybe there are times where you're going to have to break your rules, you know, and that you're going to have to say, okay, well, this is a pretty nice oak, but I need it here. uh, I need it for this purpose. And so I'm going to have to harvest it. But having those rules or ethics or guidelines, you know, just kind of help you measure that decision instead of just arbitrarily making it. But to think about, you know, the more time you can spend in a patch and notice that, okay, there's this commonality among the species and the diameter and the relative size or health, then you can Mm -hmm. kind of treat it as such and not feel like it's you know just this um it's an overwhelming part of a much bigger landscape that you need to manage and if Mm. you can kind of attack or not attack cooperate with each (laughs) patch or engage with each you know a patch at a time from year to year it's just going to get that much easier to develop a more kind of harmonious management um strategy Mm. right so the, the idea of that it being like a, a patch scale practice, I think is, is something to help make it feel less overwhelming. For sure. Yeah. It is a very, it is a very overwhelming <laughs> thing to jump into. Just like build, just like baking chairs. <laughs> <laughs> you got Micro it. Macro. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I know we could talk for hours, uh, 
because we have uh, before. So yeah. um, yep. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I appreciate everything that you've uh, yeah. we've, we've been able to discuss so far. Um, and anything well, else you'd like to add to the discussion? Uh, just, I love, I love the conversation. I mean, it's so, when I first got into some of these things, the internet isn't what it is now. Sure. And yeah. it's been amazing to see, cause like the Woodwright shop, you know, I have a bunch of Roy Underhill's books, yeah. but it was like, I, I had recorded, you know, again, VHS, like, or maybe DVDRs, you know, but yeah, yeah. episodes <laughs> of, of the Woodwright shop, you know, and yeah. now it's like, you can go online and watch every single episode and yeah, you can crazy. look up, yeah. you know, how to make a ladder back chair and find 15 different people doing it or how to harvest hickory bark. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, whereas this like digital information age is separating us so much from mm. hard skills. It mm. also gives me a lot of hope that we're not necessarily preserving these crafts, but we are at least preserving the information so that yes. if people want to develop that inner artist, right. um, it's there in a way that, you know, a video just speaks so deeply in a way that it's hard to capture in a book. And sure, that's um, true. That's true. And, but just like having this conversation with you guys just um, is helping remind me of some of this Renaissance that's, that's been happening. Mm. And, and it's just exciting and encouraging to know that you all are out there doing this and that you've got an audience of people who are also, either already turned on to this or getting turned on and getting excited and just like engaging with wood and finding the, the joy and the magic that comes from, you know, making things from living things that we tend. Yeah. Right. Very well put. Very well put. Um, <laughs> and that is how you define Sloyd. <laughs> I was just going to say our, our, our traditional final question is um, what is Sloyd? And I, I don't know if you touched it. Do you, do you, do you want to answer that in full? Cause you kind of touched on it, but yeah. <laughs> um, what, is, gonna, what is Lloyd to you? <laughs> um, so I'm going to cheat here because I wasn't <laughs> prepared for this. And uh, <laughs> well, my, my first connection with Sloyd as a term was that I was really blessed. Cause when I was at country workshops with Drew and Louise <laughs> Langsner in North Carolina, um, yeah. uh, Yogi Sundqvist came oh, yes. and mm. taught, a um, mm. Swedish bulk or a Swedish mm. carving techniques workshop. And so that was nice. my introduction to Sloyd. And cool. um, so I don't actually off the top of my head have a good definition of <laughs> Sloyd because honestly, um, I, I haven't really revisited it for quite a while. So I just pulled up, I just typed in Sloyd real quick here. And, <laughs> um, and I want to see what it says. And then I'll uh, recap, but this, the first thing that came up here is that it's a system of manual training developed from a Swedish system and designed for, wow, this is a lot of training. I'm guessing this was translated and designed for training and the use of tools and materials, but emphasizing training and wood carving as a means to this end. So uh -huh. I'm going to say that um, what Sloyd means to me is the, um, is a reconnection to our birthright, which is one mm -hmm. of engaged participation with landscape mm -hmm. and creating things that are useful, functional, beautiful, and meaningful um, in our day-to-day -day lives. Mm. Um, and ideally then passing perfect. that on <laughs> to generations to come. 
That's perfect. That's awesome. Very yeah. well put. Very Nailed well put. it. Yeah. Very oh, well put. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, I kind of like to, to leave it. If you haven't listened to the podcast, I kind of like the fact that you're not expecting it because yeah, the, the most raw, like you having, what you just did. I mean, having yeah. to rack your brain. And I think that was, really, yeah, it comes really, out so much more it's naturally. Very, very poetic. Very poetic. And beautiful. Um, awesome. when I, and wow. I would just, to add to that, I think ideally kind of just like permaculture, if we talk about it as applied common sense, it's like, ideally it's, it is just a way of being it's, we don't need a term because it's just the way we sure. exist. Right. Um, but because we've in some cases lost or forsaken it, it becomes something that we, we talk about and we create terms for, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that it's just, yeah. it's, it's a key part of being human. Mm. Um, Agreed. Our birthright. Sloyd yeah. is life. Sloyd is life. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, cool man. man. Well, it's been great chatting, Mark. Um, Same here. You guys are awesome. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Can you let us know where people can find you on the web? We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when's your book coming out tentatively? It uh, it is supposed to be released June twenty second of twenty twenty two. Oh, nice. And Very yeah, so it's it's coming right up. We're uh, uh, you know last phases of the kind of uh, typesetting layout, and um, so it's it's getting close to print time. And nice. um, I sell cool. it um, on my website on our farm okay. website, which mm-hmm. is valleyclayplain.com. and okay, that's. Nice. Okay. C L A Y P L A I N Valley Clay Plain, like like the plains in Spain, um, yeah. plain valleyclayplain.com. And I've got some more websites um, that maybe it's easier just like you said to drop them in. Yeah, the, I'll throw them in there. The, the description, but yeah, valleyclayplain. And and just to say that if and when people are able to purchase books from the author, it's awesome because much better. yeah the the way that things are structured the you know it's not very lucrative to sell stuff off amazon and i still right. buy things occasionally off amazon so i'm not trying yeah. to shame anybody but to say when you're able to go straight to the source just like we all know as crafters um yeah you know it it helps keep these make these economies a lot more tenable yeah awesome amen well thanks again mark um get back to your snow removal <laughs> your new yes. baby your yeah. your wife all that good stuff and c- come visit us come visit us yeah i i would love to actually yeah. yeah it's been a while since i've been down that way and yeah. um you know honestly when i think of where you guys are that is like to me that is like green woodworking country yeah um, because yeah. it's one of the few places where i feel like it's still the sloyd is still alive you know mm-hmm. um so sloyd lives all right man well you take care uh, have a great day guys in the future brilliant thanks a lot buddy see ya take care be well bye you don't want to do a wrap-up we'll do a wrap-up okay that recording stopped awesome wow yeah i love uh, i love chatting with mark um we taught for many years together three or four years up in vermont uh, nice in permaculture design courses yeah and uh, he's just an amazing amount of experience and wisdom, mm. as you can tell. That was just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, he's My he's God. done so many things throughout his his career, and uh, yeah. it all ties back to the land, which I think is kind of you know it's a resounding theme mm-hmm. with our guest is mm-hmm. how, how connected to the land you become yeah. when you when you get involved in the stuff or vice yeah. versa. Yeah, he's 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 like the definition of slowed on so many different <laughs> levels of your life, like yeah. that I can't even imagine achieving. You know, yeah. he's just he's done it so much and for so long yeah. that um 
He is Lloyd. <laughs> he's Lloyd walking yeah we didn't I mean there were so many things we didn't get to touch on uh, especially his farm development and building his own structures and houses all that stuff is super fascinating so yeah. maybe I we'll we get him back him on, on in, yeah. in the future and he can because he, sure. he has a lot of information about um, you know some of the design and construction stuff so part two would be nice yeah yeah we've got a lot of guests I think we could do a part two with for sure, sure or part three yeah Owen Thomas, gosh, that guy can talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I bet you he's listening to this too. I know, he probably will be listening um, to this, chuckling at us. <laughs> well, shoot. Um, yeah, Mike and I are on a roll here, so we'll be back. Uh, February? End of February, we got another one lined up? Yeah, we got another, we got Zed Outdoors coming yeah. on, Zed Shaw. Um, yeah. Really looking forward to chatting with him. Yeah. So as you can see, we've got some order around here, we've got we've got some plans. Yeah. But um, as we always say, if you enjoy the show, please share it let people know about it. Um, and as I mentioned last time, we're, you know, continually trying to get our, our presence a little bit more out there. So we're slowly chipping away at all that. But, um, the best we can do for us is if you're getting value, return it to us however you can. Yep. So anything else, Mike? No, blow it out. Blow it out. <laughs>